reading this evening comes from Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, He led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, Prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Why do different churches have different views on faith and God? That was one of the questions we were asked last year, and it's a good one. For a start, the the sheer number of different churches is bewildering, isn't it? I mean, here we are in Brighton Road Baptist Church, and right next door to us is Rehoboth Baptist Church. Not just two different churches next door to each other, but two Baptist churches next door to each other. It is a source of perpetual embarrassment to me. And in Horsham, there are no less than five Baptist churches, each of them slightly different to all the others. Then you have Anglican churches, Methodist churches, the United Reformed Church, the Salvation Army, the Brethren, King's Church, Go Church, Kingdom Faith, the Catholic Church, and the list goes on. You have to ask yourself, why are there so many different churches And does the existence of so many different churches mean that actually there is something fundamentally wrong or broken somewhere? Because after all, doesn't Ephesians 4 talk a lot about the unity of the church? Aren't we all one in Christ somehow, somewhere along the line? What about keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Ephesians 4 talks about the single body of Christ, yes. We all share the same hope to which we've been called, yes. We acknowledge one Lord. Amen. We proclaim one faith. Yes, there is only one baptism. Ah, 
What does that mean? One of the reasons why we're called a Baptist church is that we trace our origins back to a group of Christians in the early 17th century who read their Bibles and decided that there was no biblical basis for the common practice of infant baptism in the Bible. So they were going to base their faith on the Bible and they were going to follow what seemed to be the biblical practice of baptizing people when they made a personal decision to repent and put their faith in Christ. And if we're here, I guess we agree with that. But what does that say about one baptism when there's manifestly more than one, at least on the, on the surface? That Baptist breakaway movement, and it was a breakaway from the established church, came on the back of the Reformation which also was a time of a big split within the church when the Protestant churches broke away from the Catholic church over the question of whether the Bible carried more authority than the Pope and received church tradition. And whereas the term Catholic actually means universal, even before the Reformation, the Catholic church was anything but universal. For the past five centuries before the Reformation, there'd been a major split between the Catholic church in the West, based in Rome, and the Orthodox Church in the East, based in Constantinople. And that split happened formally when the Catholic Church took took it upon themselves to add a single word to the ancient Nicene Creed. So that instead of saying, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, they now said, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Filioque was the word that was added and resulted in a major split within the church. The fact that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son is arguably more biblical, but the Orthodox said, actually, in fact, it demeans the Holy Spirit. And there were all sorts of reasons and pros and cons why the argument goes backwards and forwards, but it was a split over a matter of single word in a creed. The origins of that split actually date back a further five centuries When Rome, one of the three great centres of Christianity alongside Antioch in Syria and Alexandria in Africa, fell to the barbarians. So Constantinople became the new base for the Western Church. But it didn't really work because in Rome they spoke Latin, in Constantinople they spoke Greek. So the transition of power was never really that complete. And what was left of the church in Rome? So, in actual fact, you know, although you know, Rome's been conquered by the barbarians now, we, we still have an historic link with the Apostle Peter, don't we? So we still actually should be the primary base of the church in the West. And then the Christians in Jerusalem said, well, hang about. If you're going to talk about the historic significance of the church in Rome, surely Jerusalem has a, has a sufficient historical significance to be a, a base in its own right as well. So the church ended up being based then around Rome and Constantinople and Jerusalem and Antioch and Alexandria, each of them a different base with a different cultural centre, different languages spoken. In Antioch and Alexandria, they had different ways of reading and interpreting the Bible. In Antioch, they tended to go for the plain, literal meaning, whereas Alexandria, they were far more into finding figurative meanings and using allegory and looking for deeper symbolic meanings within the text of the Bible. Each of the church developing in its own particular direction. If you go back further behind the Nicene Creed, There were differences in understanding who Jesus was. That's why the Nicene Creed was established, to say this is the orthodox faith. But people had serious questions. Sure, Jesus was the son of God, but if he was divine, 
was he also 100% human? How did that work? If he was 100% human, how could he also be God? Are you saying that Mary gave birth to God? Did God die on the cross? Where did Jesus come from? Did God create him? If he wasn't created, how do you talk about his relationship to the Father? How, how do the Father and the Son fit together? And where does the Holy Spirit come in as well? And if human is God and, and, and man, can you divide the human bit in Jesus from the divine bit in Jesus? Was there a kind of compartment between the two? These were thorny, difficult questions. And Christians spent centuries debating them and disagreeing over them and anathematizing them and kicking people out they disagreed with. Eventually, the Trinity was established as the basis for Orthodox Christian faith. Today, we talk about Trinitarian churches, which means that mainstream churches are in, Jehovah's Witnesses are out, Unitarians are out. But the Trinity, of course, has to be one of the most incomprehensible and mysterious aspects of Christian doctrine you could think of. So it's bizarre, really, that we base our unity upon the most impenetrable of Christian mysteries. You go back further, back to the pages of the New Testament. Surely things might have been simpler then, but they weren't. Even then, Christians were disagreeing over whether Jesus was really God, born as a flesh and blood human being. You find that argument rehearsed in the letters of John. So there were questions about doctrine and questions about practice as well. Because Jesus was a Jew. The first disciples of Jesus were Jews. The early church started as a Jewish movement. When non-Jews started believing in Jesus, did they have, in effect, to become Jews themselves as well as believing in Jesus? Did they have to start to keep the Jewish food laws, eat kosher food only? Did they have to be circumcised? And if they didn't, then, you know, Jews who had a tradition, actually, of, of being pre- prepared to, to lay down their lives rather than compromise their beliefs about whether it was okay to eat unclean food or not, how could these Jewish believers, for whom eating unclean food was absolutely out of the question, sit down at a table and share food with Gentile believers if Gentiles were eating who knows what? How could the church be one if there were two fundamentally different views about what you can eat and how you could eat together? That's the question that's behind Paul's letter to the Galatians, where he's quite fiery in terms of defending the fact that it's faith in Jesus makes you a Christian, you don't need anything else. And in Romans as well, where he's slightly calmer, trying to find ways actually of getting all these people to agree and sit round the table together. Because the church in Rome looks like it was made up of a number of different congregations with different views on the importance of the law. Some insisted on the full observance of the law and being circumcised if you were going to be a follower of Jesus. There were others who said, yeah, you've got to keep the food laws, you've got to observe the Sabbath, but circumcision, well, that's optional. And then there were some who said, well, you forget about the Sabbath, but you've got to keep the food laws. Others who said, well, you've got to keep the Sabbath, but the food laws are optional. And some said, forget it all, none of it matters. These views were deeply and passionately held. And if someone in the conservative wing of the church saw someone else taking a bacon sandwich into their place of work on the Sabbath, they would have real problems with that. How can you be a follower of Jesus 
if you're breaking the food laws and working on the Sabbath? How do you begin, actually, to say that you're, you're following Jesus who said not one jot or tittle of the law will disappear until the end of the age? How does that work? Followers of Jesus, passionate about obeying the law. Followers of Jesus, disregarding the law. And yet somehow, all followers of Jesus, somehow, in the sight of God, all one in Christ. This business about, are you going to be progressive or conservative when you interpret your scripture, this actually is the same underlying issue that is causing so much trouble in the Anglican communion over the issue of homosexuality. Do you take what the scriptures say about homosexuality at face value? Or do you find a way of reading and interpreting the scripture in such a way that gay people can actually be welcomed and affirmed on the basis of their faith in Christ? For conservatives, that idea is an anathema. For liberals, it's a matter of justice. And there are strongly held views on both sides. Full marks to the Church of England and the Anglican Communion for thrashing it out this week and reaching a compromise, which they are past masters at, are they not? Uh, The Episcopal Church had their knuckles wrapped, not for what they taught, but for breaking away from the rest of the church and going off and doing their own thing independently of everybody else. But somehow, they made it through to the end of the week without a major split. The secular world looks on and thinks, good grief, what is this all about? And you have to admit, when you read all that stuff about unity in Ephesians, when you see Christians disagreeing with acrimony, the church fails big time if that happens. Especially when you think about Graham Kendrick teaching us the song, Jesus taught us how to live in harmony, Jesus taught us how to be a family. But the church, we are called to be a community of reconciliation. To show how diverse people can be united by a common faith in Christ and so reflect the unity of the one God who is himself, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Difference and unity at the centre of the Godhead that somehow should be reflected and expressed within the different branches of the church today. In his commentary on Ephesians, Andrew Lincoln astutely observes that the church is to be the embodiment not only of the final cosmic unity planned by God, but also of the unity of this God himself. And the key to achieving this, when we encounter Christians with whom we disagree, when we get together with each other at St Mary's Church next week and rub shoulders with Christians we would not normally rub shoulders with, the key actually is to be speaking the truth in love. To recognise, yes, we we are different, but we do love each other. And the love that we have for each other means that we will share the truth and we will listen to the truth as it is shared and we will seek to come to an understanding of each other's point of view. Andrew Lincoln again. The association of truth and love is a significant one. Any claim to loyalty to truth which results in a lack of love to those perceived to be disloyal, stands as much condemned as any claim to all-embracing love, which is indifferent to truth. Did you follow that? Let me read it again. Any claim to loyalty to truth, which results in a lack of love to those perceived to be disloyal, stands as much condemned as any claim to all-embracing love, which is indifferent to truth. 
But it is not as if two competing claims or two quite different qualities have to be held in balance. Ultimately, at the heart of the proclamation of the truth is love, and a life of love is the embodiment of the truth. The church reflects this relationship when its witness to the truth has love as its style and its power. And in actual fact, if we are to come to an understanding of the truth, we need to listen to what other people to say, say who have different perspectives on the truth. Because that enables us to see the truth, not just from my perspective, but from your perspective as well. That gives a three-dimensional understanding to what is going on. It fills out our understanding of what God and Scripture and the Church really are all about. You might feel, I'm drifting from the question, why do different churches have different views on faith in God? And I apologise if you feel I am doing that. John Calvin, at the time of the Reformation, said there are two marks of the true church. One, the visible church is truly present when the word of God is purely preached and heard. Two, the visible church is truly present when the sacraments are administered according to Christ's institution, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Straight away you think, well, hang about. Salvation Army don't practice baptism in the Lord's Supper, yet we regard them, actually, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. They are a manifestation of the church historically. They were never set up to be a church. They were set up to be a mission. But they fail Calvin's test. And that business about the word of God being purely preached and heard is delightfully vague, isn't it? At root, it's all a matter of how we understand and interpret the Bible. Because if we've read and understood Scripture in a certain way for centuries, and someone comes along and says, no, you got that wrong. Actually, it means this instead, if you read it properly. How do you respond to that? Do we stay with traditions that have stood the test of time? Or do we allow this new perspective to broaden our understanding? That was the Reformation, in effect. Luther said, you've got it wrong. The church tradition has got it wrong in terms of how the Bible works. This is the word of God. This is what it means. This is what we should be doing. And there was a reaction against him. Sometimes, you know, I read stuff written by evangelicals and they say, well, our understanding of the Bible should be governed by how it's been interpreted in the past. Excuse me? Did the Reformation not happen? Did we not say, actually, the word of God is our authority, not the tradition of the church? Do we recognise that God has the capacity to bring fresh light and truth from his word? But we all draw the line in different places. Penal substitutionary atonement. The Christ died bearing God's punishment for human sin. Some people find that an un un unhelpful picture. Some people say it's fundamental to the true Christian faith. There have been severe disagreements about that. Scripture, is it the inerrant, infallible word of God without error in anything that it affirms? Or in actual fact, you know, is it open to interpretation? Is it scientifically true? What about seven-day creation? Is that a fundamental aspect of the faith or, or not? Christians disagree fundamentally about these things. And if I were to take polls, we would draw the line in different places in this congregation here. Baptists have traditionally tended to be progressive. Believer's baptism, not infant baptism. 
For 15 centuries, the church has got it wrong, they said. The time to be baptized is when you believe in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Infant baptism is not scriptural. They broke the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in affirming what they saw as a fundamental Christian truth. We might be inclined to agree with them. What about William Carey reading the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel? That is our responsibility, he said, to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. We've got to do it. That, again, was a break from the way Scripture had been read for centuries because Jesus said those words to the Twelve Apostles. Didn't he? Well, they'd gone out and preached the word to, to all the nations. And now here was the church and the job was, we didn't need to do it anymore. And Kerry said, no, the job isn't done. We've got to go. It applies to us as well. A radically different way of reading scripture. And at the moment, with all the debate about sexuality, we see again this, you know, how do you understand what the Bible says? Do we stick with what it says plainly or, or, or do we interpret it? And people struggle with this. These issues affect our worship as well. Corinth. You've heard me say before, I say again, every time I struggle a bit with being a minister of a church, I thank God that I am not minister of the Christians at Corinth. Full of people speaking in tongues, prophesying lively, spontaneous worship. Places like Kings and Kingdom Faith tend to model their style of worship on the worship of Corinth. But what Paul says in Corinthians, is that a blueprint for worship or is he just responding to what was happening there? That kind of worship is really not most people's cup of tea at Brighton Road. Brighton Road can be a bit more sometimes like the church in Thessalonica where Paul has to say to them, look, you know, don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophesyings, you know, test everything, hold on to what is good. Thessalonica, quite actually buttoned up when it came to worship. Corinth, anything goes when it comes to worship. Two totally different churches, both equally the church of Christ. Same here in Horsham. Very different styles of worship. You go to one church, you go to another church, is this, is this the same religion? How do, how do these two relate to each other? Yes, fundamentally different, but both coming under the Lordship of Christ. And these days, every church is different. On what basis do people choose a church? Denominational allegiance is growing weaker and weaker. How many people here have been Baptists all their lives? Yeah, some of you. Some of you. Lots of you have jumped ship somewhere along the line in that case then. People choose churches on the basis of the worship, the welcome. Someone said, I come to your church because the chairs are comfortable. That's fine. The convenience of the building, whether the church is really engaged in mission, the length and content of the sermon, whether what the preacher says is relevant and understandable and you agree with it or not, whether you find people there of your own age group, whether there are children there for your children, etc., 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 And the sheer variety of churches isn't a problem so long as that variety is grounded in a fundamental unity in Christ which is expressed in respect and love and support for each other. 
So if one church flourishes, we rejoice in God's goodness to them rather than being angry and upset and resentful that they are growing and we are not. Corinth was actually a congregation where different people clustered around different leaders, where there was a divide between the haves and the have-nots, where there were widely differing standards on morality, where there were disagreements about the use of tongues. So many different ways of splitting the body of Christ, yet Paul wanted to see all that diversity grounded in a fundamental unity in Christ. With all the differences and the arguments and the disagreements and the things that were wrong, still, it was the Church of Christ. So it's to them that he says, look, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works in them all. To each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So when we think about the church today, we we might paraphrase paraphrase his words. There are different styles of worship, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but we all serve the same Lord. God is at work in different churches in different ways, but it is the same God at work in and through them all. And we seek the common good. Not just our benefit at the expense of other churches, but the benefit of all the churches as we work together for the glory of God. Where does that leave the the one baptism question? has to be actually said, well, we do it this way, but in actual fact, if you've been baptised in a different church tradition, we honour and respect that. One baptism, expressed in different ways, but one baptism in Christ. In Horsham, we are blessed and so blessed with a wealth of good churches. Some of you have done the rounds, so you know. There's a range of worship and preaching styles. There are various congregations, different buildings, different ministries, different ways of understanding, interpreting and applying the Bible. Does God have his favourites? I don't think so. Wherever people gather in Jesus' name, he's promised to be there. And he is at much in home in kingdom faith as he is in the Catholic Church or the most exclusive brethren assembly. What he looks for is people who will declare that Jesus is Lord. Who will put their faith in him. Who when they speak will always seek to speak the truth in love to benefit whoever is being spoken to and whoever is being spoken about. Who will participate in God's mission for the world. When you find a church that's right for you, and that's glorious if it's this one, but when you find it, the thing to do is to play your part in making it a great church for everybody else as well. Let's pray. Lord, your servant Paul said that the body of Christ is made up of so many different bits and each bit is different, yet they all work together as one body. Help us to do that here in this congregation. Help us to do that in this town as different churches and fellowships and denominations and movements. Keep us focused upon you. Thank you for all the things that we have in common. 
Thank you that we can declare Jesus is Lord. Thank you that your Holy Spirit makes us members of his body. Thank you, God, for being our Father. Help us to learn from each other, to build each other up, and to work together for your kingdom. Because there are so many more people in Horsham outside of church than there are within church. So keep us, Lord, from disagreeing about what we believe. And give us grace to find ways of sharing what we believe with those who don't believe at the moment. Inspire us with your heart for mission, your love for the world, that together we might live and work for your praise and glory. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.